The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is psychotherapist John Amodio, Ph.D., author of Dancing with Fire, A Mindful Way to Loving Relationships. Welcome to the show, John. Nice to have you on. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Well, you are a licensed marriage and family therapist. You've been engaged in Buddhist practice for over 40 years. So I'm assuming that your latest book, Dancing with Fire, as I just mentioned, kind of represents the work that you've done with your clients over all these years. Work I've done with my clients and with myself over all these years. That's right. All right, so let's talk about this in reference, I guess, do you want to talk about you first or clients or? Um, let's talk about clients, you know, because I've been doing this work. I've been a therapist for a very long time now, several decades. And, um, you know, a lot of people come in, they, they say they have a communication problem. They're not connecting. They're feeling alienated and distant from each other. And they don't have many ideas about what it takes to, to really connect. And, uh, and I can relate to that because that happened to me in my younger years, and I find that what, what people really have is more than a communication problem. They have a self-awareness problem, and they have a sort of a courage problem. What, what I mean by that is they don't know how to be mindful of what they're really experiencing deep down. They're only aware of their surface emotions, maybe their anger. They're very attached to their blaming of each other. They analyze each other. They say what's wrong with the other person instead of courageously opening to what they're tender feelings are that are coursing through them, really opening to their their hurt, their fear, their shame, and being willing to share what, what hurts them, what, what they're longing for. You know, often in Buddhist practice, people deny and avoid their desires, their longings. They have the mistaken idea that if I desire something, it means I'm not being very spiritual, I'm not being a good Buddhist. But uh, that's a real misinterpretation of what, what it means to be a Buddhist or what it means to be a spiritual person. What it really means is opening to the life that exists within us. Those desires, those longings, they come from the life force. And if we don't open to those feelings, we're denying life. We're denying ourselves. We're, and, th- and then we don't know how to connect with each other because we're pushing away our, our, our authentic experience. So this in the book is what you're going to sh- what you show us how to do how to have an intimate relationship combining Western uh, psychotherapy with Buddhist uh, spirituality and by combining those two practices we can learn how to have greater intimacy in our relationships. Yeah, the way I, yeah the way I would say it is in the West we the search for romantic love is really central. We want to honor our feelings and be autonomous, be our own person. So what we can learn from psychology can really inform how we approach Buddhist practice. You know, the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, Carl Jung, they all talk about how we need to 
to find a Western approach to spirituality. So give us an example of that. Like, I put this in a context where we can really understand it. Like, give us examples of, uh, you know, real-life cases, examples of of people in your practice who come in and say, you know, we aren't connecting, we're not intimate, um, and where you've had success. Yeah. Yeah, well, some people will come in who have no Buddhist or spiritual uh, approach, and they don't know how to connect. And other people sometimes have a spiritual uh, perspective on life, and they think, oh, I don't want to be too attached. I don't want to have too many desires. Um, feelings means I'm aggrandizing myself. I'm getting too attached to my ego. And um, with, when people are really getting attached to their ego is is when they think they're getting attached to their ego, when they're denying their actual experience. So, so what happens a lot in my practice, Catherine, is people begin to open to their true feelings. I try to create a really safe place for them to create a climate for real intimacy and real connection. I listen to each of them. I encourage them to really listen deeply to themselves and to honor themselves, to honor what they're really feeling, to be gentle and kind and compassionate toward their feelings, to cultivate loving kindness toward their own feelings, especially the feelings that they're not comfortable with. So, for example, a couple might come in and and the woman might say, you know, I never see you anymore at night. You're married to your job. Your job is more important than me. We're, We're not connecting. You know, why don't you just spend the night at the office? You might as well stay there. And then he might say, well, maybe I will. That's the best idea you've had in a long time. And they're kind of off to the races. Their conflict escalates. So when I can help, let's say in this case, help her to say, you know, sweetie, I'm I'm really missing you lately. I'm having this longing to be with you. I so much enjoy our time together. And I really love to spend more time with you. You know, in that sweet way of saying it, he's much more likely to soften and say, oh, wow, you know, I'm really missing you, too. I just hate all these late nights, you know. Let me me see if I can get tomorrow night off and we'll hang out together. That would be really great. I'm missing our time together, too. That's a good example. Um, Is that a difficult place to get to? I assume that the first time a couple comes in, this doesn't happen immediately. I mean, you talk about in the book, first you have to find your authentic self, and then you can find your authentic relationship. So some stuff has to kind of come before that, doesn't it? The people, what needs to come before it, Catherine, is people need to feel safe and that it's okay to feel what they feel. You know, a lot of us grow up in our, in our society where we judge our feelings. We think it's a weakness to have vulnerability. We, we think we have to be strong, quote-unquote, which means not having vulnerability, not saying what we really need and what we want. And that's kind of crazy thinking because those needs are going to come out one way or the other. And the way they usually come out is with anger. They, they come out in terms of our secondary emotions. We react, we attack, we analyze the other person. Like in that example, she said, you know, you're married to your job. She has all these ideas in her head about him, putting him in this box. So I try to help them soften and say, well, you know, when you say that, I'm wondering what you're really feeling deep down. I wonder if you could take a little time and go inside. And sometimes I'll even say, you know, I wonder how that feels in your body, because our body never lies. Our body gives us important information about our life. You know, there's an approach called focusing that I talk about in the book as a practical method that I use both in my therapy and in my writing. Just to slow down, you know, notice is there, you know, what's happening in your belly and your chest just slowly attuning to what's happening in your being and being able to then find a language of the heart that expresses what's really happening in your heart. What kind of resistance do you usually get? Because, you know, I I think 
I know for one, for me, I think you hit on something. You know, I don't want to feel weak. I don't want to feel vulnerable. Mm. Our Western culture certainly promotes that. You have to be strong. And Mm. so it's, and I know that combining the Buddhist uh, spirituality, I would soften that, I guess, but. Um, you know, you really have to get over some of the cultural stuff that we've all, that most of us have been programmed for. Yeah, no, exactly. And often I'll say, you know, in our society, we're often taught that feelings of vulnerability and sadness and hurt and longing for connection. We're often told that that's a weakness, that we should be strong and rise above that. But actually, that's actually our authentic experience. And it takes courage to really honor what we're really feeling and then find a way to express that. And part of our work here together, I'll say to my clients, is you know, I'll try to help you find words that express what you're feeling. If, they, if you don't find them, and then you can let me know if that resonates for you or not. We can kind of work together in a collaborative way to move forward. And, and, what, and, and we could experiment with this and see how it goes when you each get in touch with what you're really feeling and wanting and find a way to express that without defensiveness. You know, we often get so defensive with each other without attacking each other, without blaming, without criticizing, and we'll see how that goes. And, and magic tends to happen when people do that. They're, they're surprised. There's a softening, there's a vulnerability, there's a tenderness, which really invites the intimacy that we're longing for. That can be really scary stuff. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, and you talked about, I mean, that was one of your issues as well. It's, you know, not what we're talking now about your patients, but then you have yeah. your own. Yeah. So, um, and I want to get into your own personal stuff, but also you mentioned, you know, you have to find your authentic self, be honest with yourself. And if you focus, mm-hmm. I guess what you're saying, focus on your body because your body will really reflect how you're feeling. What else can we do specifically that you talk about in the book to help us find our authentic self, and then be able to be intimate with our partner. Well, I think, I think these two methods of meditation can be helpful, focusing can be helpful. Maybe I'll we'll talk about it a little bit, too, in a moment, which works really helped me a lot. Um, you, you know, meditation really is kind of a self-intimacy. It's like a way to be intimate with ourselves, you know, and, and any yoga can be a kind of, a kind of meditation. It's really being present in our body. Um, breathing can be kind of like a meditation. It's it's a mindfulness practice. What, what we really can do is learn how to be more mindful of what we're experiencing. Just slow down, kind of get out of our heads. Maybe initially be aware of the breath because that really grounds us. That really helped me a lot when I first learned meditation um, around 1970 or so. It was just really coming slowing down, getting out of my head, out of my mind. We're all trying to figure things out too much in our head. We drive ourselves crazy. And especially we often have all these critical thoughts about ourselves and critical thoughts about each other. And, you know, that's how we grow up. We, we often get criticized and we learn how to criticize ourselves. And, and it just drives us crazy and it disconnects us. It isolates us to live so much in our heads. So one thing we can all do and, and I learned to do, and it's a gradual process, is just slow down, pause, don't answer so quickly when you're having an interaction with another person, when they say something that bugs you or annoys you, irritates you. Take a breath. Just take a little time. Slow down. How does that feel inside? Maybe notice, how does that feel on my belly when that person just said that to me? It was a hurtful comment. I don't want to just react. I want to respond. So people can learn how to respond rather than react. So, oh, ouch, that hurt. So instead of saying, well, you do the same thing and getting defensive, you know, you, you, know, you work late too, and, um, you know, you're never around. 
started getting defensive, he started to say, yeah, you know, I really hear you. That, that makes sense. It's really good to hear that you're missing me. And that, that really touches me. That feels good to hear. And, and I miss you, too. Instead of getting defensive, we just slow down. We really hear each other. You know, to be heard is what we really long for. We want to be understood. We want to be heard. So if we can extend that to the other person, really hear them without getting defensive, then they'll soften, too. They're more likely to soften. And we're more likely to really connect in a heartful, soulful way. This takes practice, John. You really have mm. to want to do this. I guess you have to be motivated. And you, and as I'm listening to you talking about the process, you really do have to practice it every day, as you say, mm. and be mm. mindful of what you're doing. I mean, I, I had a guest on a few weeks ago talking about mindful eating. You know, we're so obese and we're overweight because we really don't think about what we eat. We we eat too quickly. I mean, it's kind of, it's a similar, just be mindful of what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, I guess. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's a great example. We, we yeah. eat and we eat. We're, we're trying to gratify ourselves, but are we really feeling what it's like to actually enjoy the food, to eat mindfully, to slow down, to savor our relationships when we're having a dialogue with somebody, letting in what they're saying, not just finding more words to say, not going into our head trying to think, okay, what am I going to say next? Just, ah, how does it feel just to be here with this lovely being, with this lovely person, and having this conversation, and just savoring it, enjoying a good meal, and then knowing when you're full. And then moving on to something else after you're full, rather than keep craving and desiring. So that's an important part, point in Buddhism we can learn from, the idea that craving and clinging are what creates suffering in our life. We, we, we keep craving more food, or we keep craving more connection because we're not letting in the connection. You, know, you said something earlier about receiving, how hard it is, because it, it means being vulnerable to receive, to receive another person, to let in the love, let in the caring. Again, I mean, it's kind of being vulnerable. And, you know, it's, it's harder to receive than to give often because when we receive, when we soften, we open up our belly, we let another person in, you know, we might get hurt. So we instinctively have learned to defend ourselves by not receiving love, not receiving caring, not allowing ourselves to be tender and really connect, even though that's the deepest thing we long for. But it's a great practice, like you say, and I think really it's a lifetime practice and we need to be mindful of this every day to really savor, enjoy, relish connections with other people. It, it feeds us, it nurtures us, and, and we need it. It actually helps our immune system and really open up and connect. So it helps us to be more healthy, not just psychologically, but also physically, both. Um, but that fear of rejection you just mentioned, I think that, mm. you know, <clears throat> as a social worker and having seen, you know, see clients, um, what that's, I think that's one of the main fears or uh, that people have when by yeah. they're afraid of opening up because they are afraid of being rejected. And that's really scary stuff. Yeah, exactly. And and I, I and I try to educate my clients about shame because that's certainly something I grew up with a lot of shame. And you know, shame is something. It's that kind of that awful feeling of something. Something wrong with us. We feel defective, like we're a failure. And um, often we fear rejection because it brings up the sense, oh, I'm not desirable, I'm not wanted, I'm not liked, there's something wrong with me. And it's such a horrible feeling. We don't want to feel that painful shame that we have developed defense mechanisms to not feel the shame. We, we keep distance in relationships. We don't let in love and caring when it comes our way, even though we long for it so much. We, um, we, we find ways to blame and accuse other people. 
as a defense. Well, you and mentioned, so, yeah. I want to, you know, you talk about shame in relation to, to the way you were brought up. So use that as an example of what, well, for instance, parents shouldn't be doing with their children because you don't want to create this feeling of shame in, in your, in your yeah. children because it does have really negative effects when you become an adult. So how did that mm-hmm. work for you, and what did your parents do um, to create yeah. that feeling? Yeah. Yeah, there's a, it's really toxic to, to carry that shame. And, um, you know, I think parents do their best. And I had parents who really cared about me, did, did their best to raise me. And my father could tend to be critical and shaming, pointing out what, what I'm doing wrong and not very much telling me what I'm doing right, mm-hmm. you know, not balancing it with that. So I kind of learned to just kind of keep quiet. I become more of like an introvert and didn't express myself very much because I didn't want to say the wrong thing and then be criticized for it. It's such a painful thing to be criticized because that's shaming. That's being told you're wrong, you're bad. So what so, do you do when the child does something, their behavior is something that you don't want them to do? Give us a, a, an example, the difference between shaming a child and cr- critiquing them in a healthy way. Yeah, well, if they... Um, if, well, let's see, what would an example of that be? Well, you want to separate the, the behavior of the child from who they are as a being, as a person. So, you know, when you do that, you know, that's not okay to do that. It's not okay to call people names, you know, that hurts them, and, and that's not good. That's not, um, we don't do that in our family here. That's, that's painful. And, and you want to be kind of firm, and you don't want to soft-pedal it too much, but you want to say, you know, you know when, you, when you do that thing, it's, it's hurtful to people, and it's... Um, it's not something that we want to do. So you're commenting on the children's behavior, not on the children, on on their whole being. Like you're a terrible yeah. person because you behave that way. But the behavior yeah. is not acceptable. It's not. A, I was just kind of thinking about kids and bullying. That made me think about that. You know, it's just yeah. not acceptable behavior. You can't um, talk to somebody that way. You can't do that. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. You don't. You don't want to say to them, "What's wrong with you?" You know. You're a stupid kid, you know. You're messed up, you know. Why, when are you finally gonna learn how to how to do things right? And you know, ooh, ouch! That really is very denigrating, disrespectful, and and, and harmful. You know, it's emotional abuse. So, do we have to wait? And I guess I, this was what I'm kind of getting at. Do we have to wait till we're adults and we come into your office and we're really shaky in our relationships and we're not getting along with our partners because we're afraid of being intimate? I always like to kind of get a feel for what we can do with our kids so that we mm. don't get to that point or we don't have yeah, right. so much difficulty with being intimate. Well, that's true. And I'm not a specialist in children, I should say. But it's definitely true that we need to educate children in terms of emotional education. I mean, this really needs to come into the school systems. And, and gradually, slowly, it is coming in. But we need to have have classes and groups where children are invited to notice their feelings and express their feelings to each other to develop emotional intelligence. You know, we focus on the three R's, but we don't focus on the R of relationship and what it takes to have healthy relationships. And that's at a great cost to society because divorce is very expensive. It's very harmful to society. It's very harmful to our emotional and spiritual well-being. And if children could learn some of the fundamentals of knowing what they're feeling, you know, so like when they are bullying somebody, what, what, where is that coming from? They're probably hurting. That anger is like a cry for help. It's a message that, hey, I'm, this person's hurting inside. They're so angry. They're bullying. They're controlling other people. 
you know, what's happening? Are they being controlled at home or are they hurting in some way? Nobody's listening to their belief that they're suffering. So encouraging people to talk about what's really happening and, and noticing their feelings, being able to express their authentic feelings, it's, it's very healing. You know, even the, you know, an interesting thing is even if a feeling is painful, like hurt or sadness or shame, just to get in touch with it actually feels good. And it feels good because we're connecting to what's real inside of us. You know, when people learn that in my office or in life, and people learn that it actually feels good to connect with what you're really feeling, what you're authentically experiencing, um, it, it's very magical. It, it really empowers us to, to, to continue to be mindful of what we're actually experiencing because it feels good to us. It feels good when another person hears our authentic feelings instead of our secondary reactions of anger and blame. So... It really goes a long way to teach children this. Then they they won't need as much therapy when they get older. (laughs) But uh, you're absolutely right. And you know, not just your mind, obviously, but your body feels it. When when you're able to be authentic, as you say, and really express those feelings, authentic feelings, even if they're painful, it does feel mm-hmm. good. I mean, I mm-hmm. sometimes I've used, the, you know, seeking the truth or whatever it is. There mm-hmm. are different, but it, it, you can feel it. You know that it, yeah. it feels good and it's the right thing to do. What about, mm-hmm. what about the workplace? How does this fit in? You know, you, people will say, well, I don't want to get too touchy-feely and getting into my feelings. I have to go to work and I work in this very high-powered environment, so how does that fit into the, you know, my nine-to-five job? Yeah, depending on the job and who your bosses are and what the milieu of the job is, it can be challenging to express authentic feelings. Um, on the other hand, if you don't ever express your feelings to anybody, you, you might have a miserable life in that job, so... Um, yeah, it's a kind of a case-by-case basis, so I hesitate to say anything too general about it, because if somebody, I tell somebody, okay, just be authentic with your boss and say how you really feel, you know, you might get fired the next day as <laughs> a possibility if you have a boss who's just not interested in hearing feelings or having a bad day or something. But um, I guess I would invite people to just consider, first know what you're really feeling, whether you decide to express it or not, and f- talk to other people about it. Talk to your friends. And, you know, f- if you can find a trusted colleague at work who kind of knows the milieu a little bit, talk to your colleague. Get a little solace there and a little support. And then uh, maybe, maybe there'd be some respectful words that you could say to other people who are higher up in the system who, who, um, where you can give some feedback in a respectful way. That, that could be heard. And just, you know, share a little bit at a time. There's a principle called share, check, share, where you share a little bit, you open up a little bit, and then you check to see how that's being received. And if you feel like you're being heard and that's going pretty well, then maybe share a little bit more and just kind of go slowly like that. So you're kind of monitoring your boundaries and not going too far too quickly. So it's baby steps. You know? Yeah, baby steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, be a little cautious, a little tentative, a little, uh, and, you know, respectful and just see how far that that might go but um listen to yourself though because each person will know how far it's okay to go just really listen to yourself john you talk about in the book well you say i guess one of the premises is that um we intimate relationships are essential for happiness and there are so many Mm -hmm. books written about happiness and americans want to be happy and nobody's happy and but i guess what you're saying is unless we can have intimate relationships then we are really not going to be able to be happy yeah, that's right. We're kind of missing what the mainstream is that we need to be in touch with that would really nourish us. And, and you know, in psychology, this thing called attachment theory is very popular now. Attachment really means love and connection, that we thrive when we're feeling loved, when we're feeling connected, when we're feeling accepted. But 
a lot of people in our society, sadly, they pursue happy, their own individual happiness, their autonomy. We're in kind of these individualistic kind of addicts in our society. We don't realize that true happiness comes from, like the Dalai Lama says, from love, loving other people, from cultivating compassion for other people, compassion for ourselves. I mean, this, but we're fed by interpersonal connectedness. And, you know, this is one reason that uh, Mother Teresa says America has the spiritually poorest of the poor. You know, we have more wealth than many other countries, but we're so spiritually poor because we're so isolated. You know, we can't be happy and isolated at the same time. You know, what gives us the greatest happiness, I know this is true for me, is when I'm helping other people, when I'm being present with other people, and we're sharing together. That, and, and being open with each other, not defensive, sharing our hearts with each other. We're, we're serving other people. You know, serving other people feels so fulfilling and so rich and you know, so kind of beyond our stuck? own ego. Well, why do we get stuck, John, on, you know, in, in, in our culture, you know, individuality is, is, is something that's emphasized from the very beginning. We have to be individuals. Yeah. We have to be strong. We have to conquer. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, even when we're talking about illness, we talk about... Um, our battle, our fight with cancer, our, it's, it's always exactly. we use these like good warrior point. terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, we're, we're kind of control freaks in our society. We have this illusion, okay, if we can figure it out and control it, then we're going to be fine. We don't realize we have to learn how to interact with our environment. And when we learn that, you know, society will gradually transform, like in terms of how we treat the environment. We can't keep throwing pollution spewing hydrocarbons into the air and then expect ourselves to be happy. You know, the environment's not going to accept it at some point. It's going to rebel, and that's what's happening. We have more hurricanes, and the weather patterns are changing. Oceans are rising. We need to learn how to live in harmony with our environment. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist teacher, calls it interbeing. We exist in, in relationship, and the more we can get connected to the relationships that we have, the more sensitive, but the more attuned we become to other people, to the environment, to the animals in the world, and live much in much more harmony. We, we cultivate more loving, attuned connection with life. And that's what I talk about in the book. That's what gives us true happiness, when we attune to ourselves, to other people, to life itself, to nature, and live in that kind of harmony being, through mindfulness practice. That's what gives us the truest, deepest happiness. Interbeing, I guess that's the key word. Interbeing instead of this aggressiveness, which that word keeps coming up again. But uh, yeah. get a, if we're mindful of what we're doing, then we can achieve mm-hmm. that interbeing, which, as you're saying in your book, it affects our relationships, our intimate relationships, our relationship with the world, uh, as you mm-hmm. say, even our environment. We only have a couple more minutes left, so let's, the book, um, you can go online. You have a website, johnamodio.com. Yes, J-O-H-N-A-M-O-D-E-O at AOL.com. J-O-H-N-A-M-O-D-E-O at AOL.com. And the book is available on Amazon.com. Barnes & Noble has it. You can ask for it at local bookstores. Can you get it in an e-book form? Yeah, it is a Kindle book also. Good point. Good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Great. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Um, I thank you. And it's John Amodio, Ph.D., and the title of this book is Dancing with Fire, A Mindful Way to Loving Relationships. Thanks so much for sharing all your information with us today. Oh, my pleasure, Catherine. So good Great. to be here. 
Uh, we're going to take a short break right now, and coming up next is Dr. Kenneth Saylor. He's a, a physician. His new book is A Life That Matters, Transforming Faces, Renewing Lives. So I guess we're talking about transformation today. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support you. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. Your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is my second guest, Dr. Salyer, uh, Kenneth Salyer, MD, internationally recognized as a pioneer and leader in craniofacial surgery. He is the founder of the International Craniofacial Institute and the Cleft Lip and Palate Treatment Center at Medical City Dallas Hospital. Um, he's here to talk about his new book, A Life That Matters, Transforming Faces, Renewing Lives. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you very much, Catherine. It's nice to be with you and your listeners. Yeah, great to have you. Okay, so Transforming Lives, um, you're new, you've been doing that, I guess, for over 40 years in your career? That's exactly right. Actually, 50 years. Fifty years. Yes, ma'am. Well, you don't sound that old. Well, I don't <laughs> act that old, nor do I, or I am that old in 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 uh, the way I feel. <laughs> <laughs> I 
All right. So tell us, how do, I mean, in, in the context of what you do, obviously, uh, how do you transform lives? What is your book about? What, well, what, it's uh, the magical transformation of lives through giving them a face that society accepts. The children I deal with are mostly birth defects. Um, and when I started this work, the major deformities, there was no techniques or methods to even correct them. We could correct cleft lip and palate, but could not do the more severe deformities. We helped pioneer that along with some other doctors in America and around the world. And today, we can take major, major problems and, and give them a life that that does matter and a life that they can be meaningful individuals. Dr. Sal, doctor, tell us, how prevalent is this? I mean, how many, what are we talking about in terms of numbers, I guess, here in the United States or worldwide? Yes, we're talking about one in 500 births. So this is not an infrequent problem. And people here in the United States do not realize that the incidence is just about the same here as any place else in the world. They do hear stories about OpSmile or SmileTrain or the World Craniofacial Foundation taking care of children from uh, other countries, but not too much about what's going on in, in their own country. Well, I think a lot of us, or many of us maybe who are not that well-informed, we know about cleft palates. But when you talk about craniofacial surgery or the necessity for that, what are we talking about specifically? Well, what we're talking about are birth defects or even traumatic defects, which involve the, the head, the head bone, the cranium, the facial bones, all of the structures of the face, the upper and lower jaws, and all of the soft tissue and hard tissues of the entire head and neck. So there's any uh, plethora of hundreds of different specific syndromes. Many are genetically related. Many are not. Many are related to environmental factors which result in abnormalities, such as the mother smokes during pregnancy. She has a three times incidence of having a child with a, with a deformity. And that primarily in the United States, or are there certain kinds of deformities that, you know, are more specific to the United States or to maybe developing countries? Are there differences? Yeah, there are some differences, but in the major spectrum, they all occur here and they all occur in other countries. But, for example, when the Agent Orange was used in Vietnam, it increased the incidence of, of, of a certain group of more major craniofacial deformities, more major abnormalities of the head, the face, eyes and orbits missing, uh, premature closure of sutures so the head doesn't grow, you have pressure on the brain, you have pressure on the optic nerve so individuals lose their vision. But we see those same kind of patients here in the U.S., uh, you know, as, as well as other countries. Well, what do you say to people who say, well, I mean, I think sometimes there's kind of, an, I guess it's, it's being misinformed, it's a myth, you know, that, well, you don't know, if, it's, if something isn't life-threatening, for instance, what kind of a difference does it make? How is it transformative for someone to get what, maybe some of the, um, like, some of the things that you've described, some of the abnormalities are there that you... Well, first of all, Many of these abnormalities have major functional problems, so that it affects their speech, their ability to swallow, their ability to chew. But in spite of that, let's say that, that, that those problems can be improved. 
The other issue that we're talking about in the book is that every child and adult deserves to have a face that is accepted by society. Society turns away from those that don't look within the spectrum of normal. And they make a predetermined judgment that these individuals are mentally retarded, are not acceptable, and they're rejected. They're taunted in school. These poor, dear little children are not accepted, uh, and they have really hard time psychological problems. The deal is we can correct them. The, the, the point is of the book is please understand that these individuals can be helped. The second point and the second part of it is that reaching out and helping others is one of the keys to leading a life that matters. I would agree with that, and I guess that's why you've been quoted as saying you're doing divine work, which I guess you are. Um, you know, but what about the cost? I mean, I know in the United States, um, it would seem to me it's easier to accomplish. I'm just making that assumption <laughs> to do these kinds of surgeries. But what happens when you go to developing countries? I mean, in terms of the staff you need, the hospitals you don't have the same kind of uh, you know equipment. All of that. how does that fit into the picture and being able to accomplish what you do? Well, that's where the World Craniofacial Foundation comes in. We are about establishing dedicated centers with multidisciplinary. Uh, specialists, as well as uh, uh, affording to give them equipment and, and the know-how and the knowledge of how to do this work. In the U.S., the uh, cost has skyrocketed for all of medicine. It's totally out of control. And with managed care, uh, we've seen a lot of denial of children who need to be helped. So hopefully, we will eventually solve that problem. But my thesis is Everyone deserves to have a face that is accepted by society and have the opportunity to lead a normal life. I would agree. And I think, you know, I'm thinking about in the United States, I don't often see people with a cleft palate that hasn't been, um, you know, have been, that they haven't had surgery. Whereas if you go to other countries, I think I was in Russia 15 years ago, and there were so many people walking around with cleft palates. I keep going back to that, but that was something that really stood out, um, you know. And well, I think that's, that's right. Today, uh, we have at least made an effort to treat most of our patients. You don't see adults with wide open clefts, but in over half of the world, and including Russia, and I've been there six times, you see patients who have not been treated during their childhood and they need help. We introduced craniofacial surgery in Russia in, in 1989 and 1990, and now there is a dedicated center there doing this work. So we do make progress over time, and that's the point of the book. Half of the children of the world are denied this kind of service. The World Craniofacial Foundation is dedicated to providing that service. We have the knowledge base we've developed in the U.S., we need to reach out as human beings and help our fellow man. What's the response of young medical students? I mean, I, I, you know, you've had, as you said, 50 years of experience. How are these young medical students responding to the kind of work you do? Because I see a lot of them who just want to go into business. Medic, well, you know, you know yeah. what's happened is uh, America has transformed medicine from a very noble 
a doctor-patient relationship to a business uh, relationship, and that's part of what our society has dictated, and the doctors have to respond to that. But there are still plenty of young medical students who are in it for the right reasons, who are determined to be inspired by such work as this and go on to become specialists in this field and many other fields. I still believe that we as human beings are here to help one another, and I believe that most of the young men and women going into medicine go into it for the right reasons. Talk to us about some of the unusual cases that you've encountered. I've encountered literally hundreds of unusual cases. I've performed 16,000 operations. I've trained literally or influenced hundreds of doctors, and I've in detail trained over 50 doctors to do this kind of high-level, high-tech surgery. But I believe that some of the cases uh, have required months and months of planning and when I started, we flew by the seat of our pants. Today, we have high-tech with 3D imagery. We have MRI, CT scans, and we can make models. We can do virtual surgery. And it also is a facilitator for teaching around the world. So uh, planning a case like the conjoined Egyptian twins was over a year of just planning, and we didn't know what the outcome would be. It was going down a new road with a whole new uh, set of problems. So, Okay, that's one example. That Obviously, that's the one that we know about. But uh, give us some more examples. And, and I'm really interested, you know, in the examples where you have performed the surgery. It's taken a lot of planning. And as you say, it transforms lives, but it transforms families, too. Oh, and absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, imagine what it feels like to be a parent expecting a beautiful baby, and instead you have what is considered, I'm sorry, a monster. The parents love the baby, but I'm sorry, but nobody else accepts that baby. And the babies are hidden and actually in many cases become recluses unless they are repaired. So many other stories. I'll give you two recent stories. Uh, I did a child from Zambia who had a severe, severe problem. Her face was split apart, was wide open, with her active brain, her functional brain, out in her mouth, and she would have died. We actually brought her to Mexico, where we could do her at a reasonable rate, and my team operated on her for ten and a half hours and corrected her problem in one operation, saving her vision and putting her face back in, in, in place, and she's now back in Zambia with her family doing well. Another case that took months and months of planning is a little girl from China. Our team went over to China. This girl had wide-set eyes and major deformity, but a wonderful, bubbling little young personality and a spirit behind that grotesque face. We did a major operation with our team, teaching them there how to do it, but we did it beautiful transformation. Today, that little girl who was discarded, was, was an orphan, is being adopted by a family in Birmingham, Alabama. 
That's a great story. So you're taking these children who, as you say, I mean, look like monsters on the outside, and they're creative, intelligent, beautiful people, and wouldn't be able to express any of that if you didn't do the surgery, if you didn't do this the, the cosmetic surgery. Well, it's not just cosmetic, it's obviously. It's not cosmetic surgery, no, it's right? Not, it's yeah. reconstructing. It's the recon- difference. Yeah. The difference between cosmetic surgery is you take a normal individual and you try and enhance or change their structure, mainly for beautification. Reconstructive surgery is replacing missing parts, grotesque uh, abnormalities which influence abnormal growth and abnormal speech and abnormal swallowing and not being able to lead life. No comparison between reconstructive plastic surgery and cosmetic plastic surgery. Well, doctor, I'm glad you made that distinction because um, obviously it's an important one. But what about you personally? How did you, I mean, you've been doing this for so many years. Um, How did you get into this field yourself? I evolved into it through a number of factors. I was trained as a really good surgeon at Parkland Hospital in Dallas for a five-year training in general surgery, but I'd seen back at the University of Kansas when I was a medical student the transformation of a baby with a cleft lip and palate in in an hour and a half transformed into a, a normally acceptable and functioning little girl, and I was totally moved by that. So I came back to Kansas, trained in plastic surgery, returned to Parkland where there was no plastic and reconstructive surgery, and established the first plastic and reconstructive surgical training program in all of Dallas-Fort Worth. This led to a world-renowned department and to my going on and developing craniofacial surgery and then setting up a uh, premier center. And now we're setting up centers around the world through the World Craniofacial Foundation. So let's talk a little bit more about the foundation, you know, the vision, the mission, what, you know, what's, what is happening. And I know that there, if you go online to the foundation's website, there are ways in which if listeners or anyone wants to contribute, they can. Yes, the worldcf.org is an opportunity for you to learn more about what we're talking about and more about what is in the book and also if you're so moved, and hopefully you will be, to make a donation to help these dear little children. I think the foundation is about help, hope, and healing, and reaching out and sharing our knowledge and and educating the next generation, mentoring the next generation of of healthcare workers, and also one by one helping any patient that gets in touch with the World Craniofacial Foundation to gain access to care through offering them free transportation, free housing, and if they cannot pay, seeing that one way or another these children are cared for. And you can donate not just in term, not just just money. I mean, I, I think I went on when I went on the site. You can donate your air miles if you want to. So providing transportation that's one way. There, are, you can be creative about the ways in which you donate to the foundation. Half of our donations uh, have come over the last 25 years in in-kind service, and we really see community coming forward and wanting to help and be of service with whatever service they may have to provide this at a free basis and see that these dear little children are offered an opportunity uh, so that society will not turn them away. 
Well, I'm assuming, Doctor, that you've had the opportunity, because you've been doing this for 40 years or more, that you've had the opportunity to see kids, children that you've helped, that you've changed their, changed their lives. Have you, do you see them as grown-ups? Have you had, have, you know, had an opportunity to talk to them, to see you know, how you have transformed their lives over the years? That's exactly what the book is all about. A Life That Matters is about following the children that many of the children I have done, many of the outstanding difficult cases, into adulthood. Yesterday, I was on a local television program with a young lady that I took care of when she was three months old, and she had a severe bilateral cleft lip that went through her upper jaw. Today, she's a 27-year-old, beautiful, blonde entertainer with a, with a band. Her name is Lacey Carpenter, and she played this beautiful song that she, she, she wrote, Rebuilding One's Face. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience for me to see these children grow up and become meaningful citizens and, and in all walks of life and giving back themselves to help others. Yeah, well, I guess that that's the end result, right? It has a, a rippling effect. I mean, once you obviously you help these these young people and their families. Um, would talk, yeah, what about the, and let's talk about the families, not just the individuals, but um, you know, siblings, parents, uh, the reactions that they have once they. It's almost to them, I'm sure, in many cases, like a miracle to help uh, when you do this or you, you're doing the surgery on their their loved one. It, it becomes, uh, they, they first of all, early in life, particularly the mothers, are totally dedicated to seeing that their children can be cared for. And imagine the, 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 the anguish and the pain of all of those dear mothers around the world who cannot obtain care, do not know how to, or don't even know that these uh, uh, treatments exist. So access is another major point of development in many of the countries which lack this care. But these dear families are dedicated uh, for development of their children, but also later on they all become very strong advocates. I have a mother of a child I'd cared for who's now uh, we showed up for uh, a, a benefit that we were doing for these children as, as a strong lead giving her services back to see that other children are cared for like her child was. Uh, also, as a social worker, my experience is, and you mentioned the mothers in particular, you know, if you have a child who needs extra help and extra care, sometimes as a mother you focus on that child and the other kids get lost in the, in the kind of in this... In the, in the family, and so when you go in and you do what you do um, and help restore health to the individual, then the other children also, I would imagine, then get the attention that they need too. I mean, a, a lot of different kinds of family dynamics occur. There, there's a major uh, family dynamics that occur, and in usually what I've seen though is many of the other siblings are are very loving to their own. Uh, sister or brother, and they participate in the help and care. Um, most of them are, I see very few that, are, that can't handle it. I see many fathers in the social dynamics where they exit from the uh, situation because they can't handle it. But I, I, I think social work and social 
economic issues are so important and, and, and part of our multidisciplinary, every single multidisciplinary team is, of course, a social worker and, uh, where possible, a psychologist or psychiatrist. And these aspects, the psychological aspects of facial deformity uh, is, is, is a major, major part of it. Yeah. And I imagine adjusting depending on what age you reach the child. I mean, and I guess that's my next question. I mean, is, do you work on children who are very young, or, you know, is there a, a cutting-off point, or how does that work in terms of who you treat? There's never a cutting-off point, but our goal for all of the children that we treated and do treat is that before they become aware of their body image, which is about four years or five years of age, that we have them as optimally corrected and speaking and, 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 and functioning as possible. We start at three months and six months as the most frequent age to begin these surgical procedures and continue that during growth where many of them have abnormal growth and require repeated procedures until they're fully grown. Yeah, because I, these kids would be really right for being bullied by their you know, friends or other kids at school, and uh, as you say, which has a, uh, you know, a profound effect on their, their body image. So you're saying three months would probably be the earliest, and then you try to do it and, and work from there. Three right. months old. Yeah. I, I think that we recently had a young man uh, that is in the book. His name is Michael Hadfield, and he was bullied uh, during his uh, grade school time, and I had to do four different operations as he grew and developed. But by the time he graduated from high school, he was a, a fine-looking, functioning young man, and, and he went on to become a articulate, tall uh, lawyer uh, and very outspoken. And he, he recently was with us and stood up and talked about his life experiences, and it was heartwarming and, 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 and tear-jerking. How... You know, you would think that automatically when you perform the surgery and suddenly, you know, the person or the young person has been transformed, um, but it must take some adjustment. I mean, it must, you know, it does take a period of adjustment to, to look at yourself in the mirror and, you know, here's this new person. Uh, and even though it's positive, obviously, but it's still, there's a, it must be kind of a psychological time frame for this too in terms of accepting who you are with your new your, your new face. That makes me think of a little boy we did from Uganda. We operated on here in Dallas where we had our center with two operations. We transformed him from a bug-eyed, uh, steeple-shaped skull with uh, vision gone in one eye and with, with uh, pressure on his brain to uh, a, a handsome young man, and, and, and he couldn't believe he was looking in the mirror and feeling his face and saying, you know, is this me? And, 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 and we took him back to his village, and he had been rejected to go to school because his teacher didn't even want to accept him in school because he was so grotesque. And he was a hero in this little village, and it was a wonderful story. And he, he didn't take long to, to, to get back to uh, being accepted and being a normal kid, where he'd had 12 years of taunting and rejection. That is a great story, a good story to end on, and I want to uh, mention the book again, A Life That Matters, Transforming Faces, Re 
Renewing Lives, uh, Kenneth E. Salyer, MD, and you are the founder and chairman of the World Craniofacial Foundation, and you can go online if you... Uh, you can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere, and if you're interested in doing more work, I guess you can contact you through or contact whomever through the, the website of the uh, foundation. Also, my website, kennethysalyermd.com, and I would be happy to uh, entertain talking with anyone about this. Great. Great having you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank Good you, job. Doctor. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. Uh, Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management. Most